You know, I just thought that today would be a perfect opportunity to talk to you about winter. Thinking, I really don't, some of you may be thinking, I really don't want to discuss it. It's just, it is what it is. I'm just going to stay isolated. So who's a big fan of winter? Any winter uh, people out there? All right, there's a few. Cool. All right. I grew up in Minnesota, so uh, winter doesn't bother me. I kind of like it. My son, Josh, and his wife, Sarah, and their family, they live up in Minneapolis now. And my daughter-in-law, Sarah, told me that there are only two seasons in Minnesota. They don't have four seasons like we do. They have winter and road construction season. That's it. So, uh, you know, but as much winter as they get up in Minnesota, it's a really active community. I mean, they're all over, they're running, there's bike trails all over the place, and they're out skiing and snowboarding and all this stuff. I mean, they're very, very active community. According to studies, they're one of the top ten active communities uh, in the nation. And it's, everybody else is either west or south. Minnesota happens to qualify as the only one that's uh, active or under, this, under the guidelines that they gave. So it's interesting that winter just doesn't seem to bother them up there. But around here, as well as in most of the Midwest, winter is just an issue. I mean, some of the most... Uh, uh, they did this, Harvard did this study on depression, and they found out that there are more depressed people that live in Alaska and, than anywhere else in the, in the nation. Well, I, I can understand that. And then there was, right after that was North Dakota, and then Michigan was fourth. Guess who was number three? Ohio. Ah, <laughs> uh, I wish Tom was here. <laughs> I'd hit him with that one. <laughs> you know, but it's okay. You know, depression and Ohio kind of go together. There's a bunch of nuts there. So, uh, <laughs> I know. I so wish he was here. <laughs> I miss the guy. Wasn't he great? Pastor Tom was just wonderful. Uh, now, my son Dan lives up in Lansing. My son-in-law, Matt, they live here. He lives with my daughter, Michelle, and their family. But over Christmas, we got together, and we we're talking about winter, how much they hated winter. My wife said, she told me before I go, she said, don't use the word hate. She said, just say they don't like winter. I'm sorry, they hate winter. <laughs> That's just the truth. So I said, well, give me some words. Give me some words that, that you associate with winter. So here they are. Words that are associated with winter. Snow shoveling. Depression. Hypothermia. Death. <laughs> these are words they gave me. I said, Matt gave me these words. He said, bulky clothing. I hate bulky clothing. And heavy boots. Black ice. Treacherous driving. Death. Last one comes from my daughter, Michelle. She said, I'll give you some words that describe winter. She said, frostbite, <laughs> lack of energy, recreational eating. Boy, am I familiar with that. And death. <laughs> Obviously, they are just not big fans of winter. So, uh, you know, if winter had a lot of fans... If there are a lot of people who are big fans of winter, then how come, let me just ask you this, how come 
more people who, who uh, spend their whole careers, working careers in Arizona or Florida don't uh, move to Minot, North Dakota after they retire. I mean, just tell me that one, okay? It just doesn't, you don't see that, all right? It always goes the other way around. So, I've actually had people say to me, I mean, this, this truth, I've actually had people say to me, but God made winter. It must be good. Okay, well, according to my son-in-law, Matt, Matt pointed this out to me. He said that there is no mention of winter in the Bible before the fall. Back when everything was good, there was no mention, there was no mention of winter. You know, I mean, just go to the, just go to the book of Genesis and, and read about the Garden of Eden. I mean, clearly, clearly it was not located in the UP. So some people, some people, just keep this between us, okay? Some people actually believe that winter is evil. You know, what's, I can prove my point. What's the old saying? I will do this when hell freezes over. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hell and winter, the ultimate and human suffering put together. I mean, that's, that's what that saying is all about. But, you know, but what I want to talk to you about this morning is another kind of winter. It's a winter of the soul. I did a, a, a Bible study uh, about a year or so ago on a book by John Ortberg called Seasons of the Soul. It was a great Bible study. We just uh, really enjoyed going through the seasons and allowing God to speak to us about what those seasons mean to us. And I've just been dying for an opportunity to present that to somebody. And here we are. So typically, I have, a, I have an undergraduate degree in biblical studies from Indiana Wesleyan University, and then I went on to Wesley Seminary. But in, the, uh, in biblical studies, uh, it, was, it was just, uh, we learned how to give a message, an expository message. That was really important to the professors there, that we take, take a passage and we break it down and we teach Bible truth. And I'm all for that. I, that's what I do most of the time. Today is going to be just a little bit different. I want to present biblical truth. But the, the, uh, the passages are going to support more of this theme of winter that we're in currently. So this is kind of new for me. So guess what? You guys are my guinea pigs. How about that? <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. I'm just hoping if, if, I, uh, you know, if it goes well, uh, I'm going to be able to tell that it goes well if I don't get any of those darts shot up here. So uh, you might want to hang on to those couple that you've got in case you need them. You know, say, you're done, buddy. Okay. But this winter that I'm talking about, this winter of the soul, is when you just feel, is that, those, that time in life when you just feel overwhelmed. You just feel like the truck has just backed up and just dumped its load on you and you're just freezing cold and empty and, and confused and you just don't know where to turn. And you know what the problem is? You're not sure if it's ever going to clear up. You're just not sure about that. You know, and when you experience those kinds of feelings, then you are in your own 
season of spiritual winter. You know, there's a few books in the Bible, certain books like uh, Ecclesiastes and, and Job and, and many of the Psalms that, that talk about what this kind of winter looks like. So uh, here's a few ep- excerpts of what I'm talking about in Psalm 38, uh, 7 through 10. It begins this way in, in verse 7. My back, <laughs> this guy's been out shoveling snow, I can tell. My back is filled with searing pain, he says. There's no health in my body. I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of the heart. and All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me, and even the light has gone from my eyes. Oh my, this poor guy, he's got it bad. He's in a bad season of winter. The psalm was written by a man who was just feeling totally, utterly crushed by life. He has no strength in him. You know, I know a man, uh, a friend of mine, who got downsized. He was, only, he was only a year, just one year from retirement, and he got downsized. And company... Uh, I wouldn't say the company is heartless, but to him, that's what it felt like. felt like they just had no heart. And now he's struggling financially, and he's not only struggling financially, but he's struggling with life because without work, he's, he's, really, he's not sure who he is. He's not sure what to do. He's in a season of winter. I know a woman who got her lab report back a few weeks ago, and it showed the breast cancer that she'd been struggling with has spread And the doctor told her that it's terminal. And the end is near. And suddenly, all the dreams that she had for retirement and for growing old with her husband and traveling and watching the grandkids grow up just vanished. Just vanished. You know, in Psalm 39.6, the writer says this, a man is merely a puff of wind. We, you know, we rush about keeping busy, but it just ends in nothing. I mean, this guy's really feeling pretty low, too. Amazing how so many of the Psalms talk to us. They speak to our hearts. They're, they're raw, and they're real. They're authentic, and they speak to exactly what we're feeling. If you're ever feeling down, get into the Psalms. You will be able to identify with so many uh, of the uh, verses that are there. Uh, we, we hear how difficult this struggle is in Psalm 39, 12. I love this. This comes from Eugene Peterson when he wrote in the Message Bible. He says, Ah, God, listen to my prayer, my cry. Open your ears. Don't be callous. Just look at these tears of mine. I'm a stranger here. I don't know my way. A migrant like my whole family. Give me a break. Cut me some slack before it's too late, and I'm out of here. That's Eugene Peterson's interpretation of Psalm 39.12. You know, that psalm was written 3,000 years ago, more than 3,000 years ago. And what's truly amazing is that it reaches across the board. That psalm reaches all of us. It, it, it speaks to black and white and Asian and Hispanic, and it speaks to male and female. We all 
if we're human, experience winter. I like Psalm 88 here. The psalmist writes these, these very poignant words. He said, I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with a dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. You know, at first we see this guy, he can't even get out of bed. He just lacks the strength, and, and he, he thinks that God doesn't even care. But then, he takes it a step further, and he believes that God is to blame for his suffering. This good and gracious and merciful God that we have, he believes because of the situation he's in. He believes that this God is responsible for his suffering. In verse 6, he says, You have put me in the pit. What's wrong with you? That's how I feel about my clients that I work with and come out of drug court. What's wrong with you? Come on. You're putting me in the pit with your relapse, not thinking that they are in the pit, and I'm the one who needs to lift them up. When we're in pain, when we're hurting, and we're confused as human beings, we just want someone or something to blame, don't we? Don't we just want someone? We've got to pin it on somebody, and so there's nobody around responsible for our, uh, our demise, so to speak, for our circumstances, and so, so we blame God. It's often that God has to take the blame, but you know what? <laughs> Here's the good news. It's okay. He's big enough to take it. And he, he will love you through it, no matter what you blame him for. Because he loves you with an intensity that we cannot even imagine. Then in verse 14, the psalmist makes this interesting statement in verse 14. He says, why, O Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? He says, now this goes back to our roots See, one of the most uh, basic needs of an infant is to see the face of the parent, to hear their voice, to feel their touch. And all those things have to match up for an infant. You've got the little, the little baby, the little papoose, he's lying in the, in the, in the crib. And, and we go up, and my wife would always talk to this baby, oh, hello, the little baby, hello, oh, you're so cute. And... and but she would talk sweetly and her face would match and her touch would match. For an infant to feel secure, those things all have to match up. If a parent goes up to the baby and talks, oh, you dear little baby, but their face is just very angry, the infant can see that. The infant will feel that, uh, that anger. They will pick up those cues from the parent's face. And it's very traumatic for an infant to, uh, for one thing, for the parent to be angry, but it's even more traumatic for a parent to walk up to the little baby and then hide his face, her or her face, to hide your face. And that's what the psalmist is expressing. It's this, this basic human need to meet with God, it's, it's primal. And in the time we have left, I'd just like to make three observations. All right, number one, 
Winter is unavoidable. Beautiful. You guys did great. All right. You know, a lot of people think there should be something like, you know, five easy steps to avoiding the, the season of winter in your life. Uh, but, you know, sorry, life doesn't work like that. It's, it's you know, just because, and, and for us here, just because a person is a Christian doesn't mean we will constantly live in this perpetual state of summer where everything is blossoming and everything is great. We don't always just skip merrily down the sidewalks tossing posies out of our basket as we go through life. That's just not possible. Winter in the soul is a human experience, Christian or not. So praying harder, working harder, uh, studying your Bible more, trying to think more positively, you know, these are great steps. And I'm not saying they don't help because actually... Pouring out our hearts before a holy God and voicing our complaints to him. That's exactly what the Psalms are. The psalmist is just pouring out his feelings before God. And usually, when we do that, it helps our situation. We kind of unburden ourselves when we do that. So I'm not saying praying harder and these things don't work. They do. They're they're assets. But we will still have our seasons of winter at times especially when we're talking about a person whose circumstances have gone beyond just the normal uh, difficulties of life. These are serious circumstances that we're talking about. Jesus knew all about this. He did. Jesus knew all about this. And Jesus knew not just the physical tribulations, the physical issues that go with, with a season of winter, he also knew this, this anguish in, in his soul. He knew about that. I mean, Jesus wept in great anguish over Jerusalem. Uh, he wept at the grave of Lazarus. He, he asked to have the burden of the cross removed from him, and he was so stressed, he wept drops of blood. He was burdened. He was burdened with tasks. He was, he was burdened with the, the uh, religious leaders of the time. That, they were a burden for him. He was burdened over his followers, just wondering if they'd really get it or not. He was burdened with somehow conveying his father's message. The prophet Isaiah called him a man of sorrows. So if you feel a little sorrow in your life today, you're in good company. <laughs> you're in good company. You're, you're, you're right there with Jesus. You're in good company. You know, John 5, 7 tells us that a man is born, I'm sorry, Job, I said John, Job 5, 7 tells us that a man is born to trouble just as easily as the sparks fly into the night. All right, here's the good news. But it's only when we're in winter, it's only when we're in this season of winter that we find out we are not running things after all. (laughs) How about that? We don't actually run things in our lives. Uh, You know, Jesus had his troubles, he had his burdens, and Jesus went to the cross, as we know, to suffer and die this, this horrible death. But then he came back. He came back from that. You know, little, uh, little Susie was a cute little, little six-year-old, uh, and she was in Sunday school class, and, and the, the teacher was talking about the Easter and, and the, the, the resurrection, and, and she said, uh, does anybody know 
what Jesus talked about or what he said when, when, uh, when they came to find him in the grave and he had been risen. She was, what she was hoping for them to say was, you know, he is risen, he is risen indeed. That's the answer she was looking for. But little Susie raised her hand. She said, I know, I know, I know what Jesus said. She said, well, what is it, Susie? She said, ta-da! <laughs> well, she might not be too far off. You know, when we're in a season when everything is wonderful and things are blooming and things are going well, we're tempted to think, ta-da! You know, this is great. But what makes a season of winter so hard is that we can't say that. We can't say, I got this, because we know that we don't. In our season, but it's when, our, it's when we're in our season of winter that just like the leaves on the trees, everything is stripped bare. But when everything is stripped bare, guess what? We have more clarity. We can see further. We can see more clearly. So our first observation is that winter is unavoidable. Here's our second. Our second observation is that in winter, most people are tempted to isolate themselves. You know, even in a crowd, even when we're in church, when we're surrounded by people, we still tend to isolate. How are you doing? Oh, great. Doing great. Thank you. I would encourage you to change that. If you're in this season of winter, I would encourage you to change that. Because here's the truth. In winter, when you're in this season of winter, you will probably never desire community less, but you will probably never need community more than when you're in that season. Okay. Here's some research on depression that's quite interesting. Uh, it came from... Uh, uh, Psychology Today magazine. You know, here's some research on depression. According to a Harvard study, that there is one group of people in our society that measures uh, significant, significant differences when it comes to the subject of depression. Now, who do you think this group of, this demographic group of people is? Men? Well, yeah, probably compared to her. I, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But women? Same thing. Well, compared to him, I'm doing pretty good. That's not it. Left-handed people, vegetarians, Protestants, Catholics, somebody please say Baptists. Yeah, Baptists, that's it. No, that's not even it. Can't even say Baptists. I'm not making this up, but according to a, a Harvard study, that uh, the people who tend to suffer less depression in North America than anybody else are the Amish. The Amish. It's because they, uh, what they figured out is the Amish, the Amish live with such a strong sense of community that they have more opportunities to kind of unload their burdens, I guess, to talk things out with trusted friends. You know, most of the rest of us live in this incredible, uh, uh, incredibly individualistic society. And, you know, I'm not, well, I'm, I'm not suggesting at all that we withdraw and all live in a commune together, and that would be better for us. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that we are made for relationships. We're made for relationships. Relationships are what help us divide our burdens. Relationships are what help us multiply our joys. You know, it's funny. 
Every year as winter approaches, bears will uh, fill themselves up and then they go into hibernation and and squirrels will scurry about storing up nuts and, and birds will fly south for the winter. All these species that God made prepare diligently for winter except for one. Who doesn't? Yeah, us. <laughs> Human beings. You know, just ask somebody who works at Home Depot. I mean, I mean, the minute we have a big snowfall, uh, all, of a sudden, <clears throat> all of a sudden, the, uh, the snow shovels and the, and the snow blowers just go flying off the shelves all of a sudden. It's like people all of a sudden had this idea. Oh, it's, it's January in Michigan, and we just got six inches of snow. Huh, who would have thunk it? Well, uh, who would have? I hate to tell you, but squirrels are smarter than you, dude. For <laughs> but you know what? For all of us, for all of us, winter will come. When it does, I just want to encourage you, don't do it alone. Don't try to do it alone. Please, find a support group. Have lunch with a friend Uh, Go to a Bible study. Just don't try to manage this season of winter alone. Job was a guy. Job was a Bible guy who understood what this winter is all about. He lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He he lost his family. You know, he just lost it all. He just lost it. And at one point, we find him sitting on an ash heap, scraping scabs off his skin with a piece of pottery. How low can you get? And his wife, who used to be his biggest supporter, walks in and she tells Job, why don't you just curse God and die? My wife's homesick. I think I'll try that when I get home. Why don't you just curse God and die? (laughs) Wonder how far that'll fly. Well, we pick up the story in Job, in Job uh, 2.11. Job's friends heard all about the troubles that had come, come upon him. See, his friends are there for him. They want to be there for him. That's community. Job's friends heard all about the troubles that had come upon him. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namanthite, and Dadgum the Termite, they all come from their homes to be with Job. All right, I made, I, all right, I just made that last one up. All right. The rest of them are all good. The first three are good. That last one, Dadgum the Termite, he's, he's not really there, right? Kind of sounded like it fit in, though, didn't it? All right. Right now there's a guy in the back saying, Golly, Ethel, I don't remember nothing about no termite, man. What's he talking about? All right, let it go, bro. That's all right, just a joke. All right, all right but here's the point. Job 12 and 13. When they saw him from a distance, they hardly recognized him. They began to weep aloud because his body was just so devastated. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him. No one said a word. They just sat with him, and they grieved with him because they saw how great his suffering was. Hmm. You know, these words really struck me, because in our society, most people feel like they have to say something. My daughter had twins 
she was having twins, and she lost one. And it's amazing the number of people who came up and would say things like, well, it's a good thing you got one. It's just not something she wanted to hear. But, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is we don't, we don't want the person to feel bad because we don't want to feel bad. And to be honest, I think one of the most misused, misunderstood scriptures in all of the Bible is Paul's command in 12, Romans 12, 19, to mourn with those who mourn. Just mourn with those who mourn. A friend of mine was telling me recently that when his dad died, another guy we knew came up and asked him if his dad was saved. He said, you know, I'm not really sure. He said he never really talked about it. The guy said, oh, that's too bad, and he walked away. Oh, it's not, that's not what you want to say to somebody who's grieving. You know, I, uh, Scripture is clear. We, just, we, we don't have to have these pat answers. All we need to do is just be there to help. Just mourn. Just mourn with those who mourn. You know, if you know the story of Job, you know that eventually his friends began to offer explanations for why he was suffering. They sat with him for seven days, and they couldn't stand it any longer. They just had to say something. So, so, They start getting on Job's case. By doing that, then they got into trouble with God. (laughs) I'm thinking, yeah, go God. (laughs) Teach him a lesson. But they were at their best. They were at their best. They were at their friendship best. When they just sat there and they just mourned with him. And they didn't say anything. You say, if they'd have said something like, oh, Job, we're so sorry for your troubles. They They didn't even have to say it because they were there to prove it. You know, the problem with the church, not this church, the church, the Christian church, is in how we view this season of spiritual winter. I work with all kinds of drug addicts and alcoholics, and they come in, and most of them are in this season of winter. And we have to talk our way through it. And some of them are Christians. I worked with a pastor from Chicago who got busted while he was in Calhoun County and he plea bargained drug court. And uh, we worked together for two years. Of course, he got let go by his church, but he found another one. And he, what he found was this renewed, renewed strength, this renewed commitment to his faith. Oh, it was glorious to work with him. I so enjoyed it. We had these great discussions. But to tell you the truth, I believe that people who wrestle with depression, people who wrestle with depression, who refuse to give up, who refuse to quit, who seek help from a pastor or a counselor or or even a wise and trusted friend, who push themselves even when they would rather not, I think these are some of the greatest and most courageous people I have ever met. You know, some of the greatest Christians in history, people like Martin Luther and uh, the great evangelist Charles Spurgeon, they struggled with depression their entire lives. It's a heroic battle, and it's worth everything that you can put in it, into it. So don't you give up if you're there. Don't give up. It's worth it. So the first observation is that a season of winter is unavoidable, 
It's unavoidable. The second is, don't try to navigate that alone. Get some help. The third is this. When you're in a season of winter, like our song said, wasn't that great music? I love that music. I could sit and listen to that all day. I couldn't listen to me all day, but I could listen to that music all day. That was great. Third observation is this. When you are in a season of winter, hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. We have hope because of Jesus Christ. We have hope. Never forget that. We have hope. You know, it's amazing how much we devalue this season of winter. I mean, we even put a rodent in charge of predicting how long it's going to last. I mean, how smart is that? But just look at the facts. When you're in winter, just like it is outside, when it's dark and dreary, it can feel like that inside. We can feel useless and we can feel uh, drained. And it doesn't matter how much sleep we get. We just feel tired all the time. And, but here's something to think about. Even in winter, even in winter, new life is taking root. New life is taking root. You know, despite the struggles, life is being prepared for the spring. We're being prepared for our season of spring. You know, I have a friend who has a beautiful lawn, just gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. No golf course could be better. You know, his grass is green and thick and lush, and I have lawn envy whenever I look at it. My lawn's pretty nice. Nothing, nothing compared to his. You know, I asked him how he did it. He describes the usual stuff, you know, like fertilizer and you make sure you got to water it and all this stuff. Okay, yeah, I get that. But every year, he aerates it. I think that's the difference between his lawn and mine. He goes around poking these little holes or, or he gets a machine that lifts these little plugs out and, and, uh, and then he lightly seeds it. And, oh, my goodness, his lawn is just, just beautiful. Now, if I was his lawn and somebody was rolling one of those things over me, I'd be going, ow, stop that. That hurts. But the, season, the, the seed sits dormant all winter, and then it begins to sprout in the spring. It begins to sprout, and life becomes green and lush and different. You know, it's just an example of what it can be like for you and me when we're in the season of winter, when it ends, and it will end at some point. At some point, it will end. It's painful, and you hurt, but it will end. We can, but what we can do during this time of difficulty is we can trust that God is building something within us that is going to create new life. It's just beautiful. God is preparing a better way. Another uh, thing this season will do for us is it, it'll teach us patience. Uh, I clearly remember Keith Thompson on Channel 3 Weather uh, predicting the, the kind of winter we were going to have back in like November. He's saying, this is going to be a long, hard winter, he said. We're going to have tons of snow. Well, maybe out Boston, they're getting it. We've had some. It's been cold. We've had our cold days, but I wouldn't say it's quite as uh, drastic as what Keith Thompson was, the picture he was painting on Channel 3 News. 
You know, he had all these graphs and charts and, and stuff and how he was going to predict the, the snowfall and, and the length of the winter. But we can see right now that much of what he predicted has not come true. At least, at least not yet. Don't know what's coming, but it hasn't come true yet. And likewise, no one can predict how long you'll be in winter. You can't predict it. No one can predict it. Only God knows. And that's one more reason why we trust him. Why we trust him. It's because he's the one who knows. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 35. His anger lasts only for a moment. His goodness lasts for a lifetime. Tears may flow in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, that's not a literal morning. It's not like if you're grieving that you just flip a switch and, and morning comes. Okay, good, it's time to stop. That's, that's not it. Morning is just, it's a relative term. That might mean a year or two years. It might mean five years. Who knows? There is no timeline on grief. There is no timeline on depression. There's no timeline on that. God has the timeline. We trust him that he will be working on that. You know, uh, the word anger, sometimes we think, God must have been angry with me. He's punishing me for this. I have a lot of addicts who think that. You know, how come God's always messing with me? Is what they say. <laughs> and it's great because we get to talk about that. The word anger really means discipline in this case, in this verse. Uh, the type of discipline that's being inferred here is teaching. In other words, in the middle of our sorrow, in the middle of our struggles, God might, might be teaching us something. He might be. You know, for example, last year in June, it's been about seven months now, I lost both my parents to COVID. Oh, my. I still miss them. They were great. I had great parents. They were fun to be around. I just, I enjoyed them. I just enjoyed being with them. Uh, they taught me so much. You know, but the life of every human being is filled with this combination of, of, uh, of, of sickness and health and miseries and wonder and, and, and sorrows and joy. We all have this combination of these things. And, and, but it's in the darkness. It's in the winter. It's in the winter, in the darkness. That's when we can hope for two things. Two things. One, that someday God will bring you out of your winter. He will. Trust him. You know, it's kind of a strange thing, but in my grief, in my grief after my parents passed, I felt this amazing uh, sense of gratitude that I had the folks that I did. They were wonderful. I was so grateful to have them, and it just increased my overall sense of gratitude just in life. I was just so much more, I guess, grateful now than what I was, and I was grateful before, but God just took over. I thought, I was a little lost. I thought, what am I going to do without my dad? What am I going to do without being able to talk to him about stuff and ask him, you know, should I do this or should I do that? What am I going to do without my mom? Whenever I went and saw my mom, they were in Calhoun County Nursing Home, and I'd go see my mom, and as soon as I walked in, she'd hold her arms out, oh, come here, honey, give me a big hug. Oh, oh I miss that. But it's... 
when we're in the season of winter, God takes over, and he becomes our parent. See, in winter, when everything falls to the ground, we're left with this stark, barren reality, but we can see a lot further, and we can see God. The distance becomes more visible. You know, most of the time, people who have gone through the season of winter, uh, they're much more able to give comfort and hope to people who are struggling. They can say, we've been there, done that. Their hearts are softer, they're kinder, they're more patient. That's one observation. The other thing I want you to know about winter is this. One day, your season of winter will be over. Talked about that a little bit, but here's an old story. This is an old story. You've probably heard it a hundred times, but you know, it bears repeating because it's just classic. Anything that's classic is, is worth repeating. There was a woman who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was given just a few months to live. The doctor told her she needed to make her end-of-life preparations. So the one thing she did, the first thing she did, actually, was go to her pastor, and she made preparations for her funeral. Because they met, and she told him what song she wanted to have sung, and, and uh, what dress she wanted to wear, and what scripture she wanted quoted at the, at the funeral service. And she gave her pastor her favorite Bible, the one that was all marked up and dog-eared and underlined and, and uh, highlighted. And, and she told him that she wanted to be buried with it. She wanted to be buried with that, that Bible, her favorite. Oh. Well, as you can imagine, that was, a, that was a very sober discussion. I've had a few of those discussions. And uh, uh, yeah, they're hard. Then she told her pastor, she told him one more thing. There's one more thing, she said. And he said, well, what's that, he said. She said, now this is important. I want to be buried with, my, with a fork in my right hand. Pastor didn't know what to say. He'd never had such an unusual request. And uh, so she explained, in all my years of going to church functions, my favorite part came when whoever was clearing the dishes would come over and say, keep your fork. Keep your fork. That's when I knew my favorite part was coming, and it wasn't jello. <laughs> it was something with substance, like chocolate cake or pecan pie. You know, biblical food. <laughs> uh, she said, I just want people to see me in my casket with a fork in my hand because I want them to know that something better is coming. Something better is coming. And she went home, and sadly, you know, she died a few weeks later. And, and so they, uh, they had the service, and the people came. They saw the dress that she'd picked out, and they sang the hymns that she'd picked out. And they saw the, the old tattered Bible in her hand, and, and they, everybody asked the same question. All right, what's up with the fork? What's up with that? And the pastor explained, because she wanted everybody to know what was up with the fork. For anybody who has known Jesus, it's not a day of defeat. Psalmist tells us, sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Uh, so I have some homework for you today. All right, Calvary Baptist Church, I have some homework for you. Probably going, oh man, I hope you did not a lot here. Okay, all right. 
It's not a lot. It's not a big deal. Okay. This week, just this week, between now and next Sunday, every time you sit down for a meal, I just want you to look at your fork, and I want you to thank God. I want you to be grateful that something better is coming. And then I want you to remember to hope. Remember to hope. And I want you to keep on hoping. And I want you to keep on fighting for every day God gives you on this earth. Every day. And I want you to remember that while winter might not be unavoidable, while it might seem hard and even overwhelming, it's not final. It's not final. This season that you're in, it's not final. It lingers sometimes for a while. It'll linger. And there always will be days when it seems like it's never going to end. But it will. It will. Uh, it may seem like winter's going to be here forever. But you know what? What follows winter? Spring. And spring is when God did his best work. Spring is when God has, did his best work. And that's why we have hope. Because of the work God did in the spring. But that spring, that's another message. See, now you've got to have me back so I can explain what spring is. So, the first thing we need to do is just get through winter. First thing we need to do is get through winter. But in the meantime, Keep your four.